Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio, a women's show where we explore a variety of topics relating to women in religion and society. Earlier this year, I travelled to India and had the chance to visit the beautiful ancient streets and alleyways of Old Delhi, its narrow lanes telling centuries-old stories of emperors and conquerors, poets and artisans, merchants and commoners alike. I remember the bustling atmosphere being interlaced with a sense of history, the majestic silhouette of the Jama Masjid standing tall against the sky, a testament to the Mughal Empire's grandeur. I remember in this awe-inspiring backdrop the tantalising aromas of street food that filled the air, from mouth-watering kebabs and flavourful biryanis to piping hot jalebis and creamy kulfi. The culinary offerings of Old Delhi were a glimpse into history and a bridge between the past and the present, connecting us to the cultural tapestry that wove through the streets of Old Delhi. Each culinary creation served as a testament to the dedication and reverence of those who prepared it, honouring the traditions passed down through generations. It was amongst the harmony of the flavours and the richness of the history and the vibrant spirit of the old city, a curiosity was sparked within me. I realised that behind every dish lies a story, a connection to culture and a reflection of faith and its teachings. And so, in today's episode of Sisters on Air, join us as we delve into the history and origins of the Islamic teachings and practices regarding food. We will be learning about the process of halal food certification and understanding the science behind the methods and the benefits for animal welfare and food quality and safety. We will be discovering the role of food in Muslim culture and the profound significance of meals within the Muslim community, including festive occasions like Eid and Ramzan. We will look into food and the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and we'll also be debunking prevalent myths surrounding women's roles in the kitchen, proving that cooking is both a creative and intellectual pursuit for anyone passionate about the culinary arts. Join us as we uncover the fascinating intersections of food, faith and culture on this enlightening episode of Sisters on Air. I'm your host Khulu Tahir and I'm joined today by Sabiha Kuyum and Sana Hanif. Welcome to the show both. Assalamualaikum. Let's get straight into it. So food holds a special place in the lives of all living things as it serves several vital purposes for their survival, growth and overall well-being. For Muslims, it is not only a means of sustenance but also as a reflection of our faith in that it is a mercy and a provision from God. In some ways, certain foods like dates, for example, contribute to a shared and unified Muslim culture. So, Sibiha, welcome to the show again. Could you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background and um, the role food plays in your life? Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you. My name is Dr. Sibiha Kayung. I am a GP based in Surrey. I enjoy reading and learning about health and holistic well-being and what we as individuals can do to improve this and linking in with today's topic about nutrition as well. For me, food is firstly a source of strength and nourishment, 
We know we can't live without it. From a social point of view, it brings the family unit together at mealtimes where we can spend time talking about our day-to-day -day activities or future plans. Secondly, I actually spend a lot of time thinking about meal planning for the family and think about ensuring our meals contain a good variety of nutrients for each family member. So, for example, catering for children, elder family members, and in terms of exercising regularly, thinking about a good diet which can help with achieving fitness goals. Being a GP, I have a lot of conversations about food with my patients, whether it is to do with weight loss, managing cholesterol, or discussing food requirements with an expectant mother, etc. And thirdly, I think food is a common ground, a universal experience. It brings people together from all walks of life. It's a language that can connect us all, no matter our age or where we are from. We often find that food is the centrepiece of most social interactions. So we chat over cups of tea with friends and family and entertain guests with food, and in doing so, build on our relationships with each other. So for me, the topic of food plays a huge part in my daily life. Thank you, Sophia. It is a pleasure to have you here on the show with us. Um, I wanted your thoughts on something. Um, it's often said that a woman's job is only in the kitchen. What do you think about this? <laughs> so historically, I think... Society has seen a woman's role as only being in the kitchen, but I think now we have well and truly moved on from this concept and a woman can choose her role or roles to be wherever she chooses and flourishes. I think women have a far greater role to play, not only in the family unit, but in society as a whole. If we were stuck in the kitchen all day, I'm not sure how society would make progress. We have women in various different roles in society from teachers, doctors, to graphic designers, bakers, to those who run their own businesses. I think the list is endless. For example, as a mum, I'm sure many can relate to how we juggle through our day from the school run, to going to work, doing the food shop, helping children with homework, etc. So already we can see that if our main job was only restricted to the kitchen, we wouldn't be able to achieve a lot. Islam in particular has given women the right to pursue their interests and aspirations and has encouraged us to look after our health and well-being. Whilst it acknowledges that our primary role is to be a guardian of our homes and to raise our children well, it still allows us the freedom of learning and of working amongst so many others. We may have an important role to play in the kitchen regardless, so if we are masters or mistresses of our kitchens, I think that should be celebrated too. I think every woman, regardless of whether she has a career or not, still has a huge role to play in running a household, even if it be from the kitchen. But I think today we should recognise the impact that our roles have and how this reaches far beyond the confines of the kitchen. Indeed, that is very nicely put. Thank you so much for your answer. Um, Sena, welcome to the show too. Um, it's really nice having you here. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background and the role food plays in your life? Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you. Thank you for having me here today. So my name is Sena Hanif. I live in Andover, which is a small town in Hampshire. I'm happily married for 11 years and I have two boys the age of 8 and 10. I've studied law and currently working as an Adobe product specialist. 
I was born and brought up in Germany and moved to the UK in 2007. This is a very good question. As a family with growing children, food plays a very big role in our life, as me and my family all love food very much. As we have three cultures running between us, our cravings vary from time to time. Being a Muslim household, Islamic practices and food traditions fuse in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And um, I also need <coughs> your thoughts on something that I've heard. Um, some people say all women are natural cooks. Do you agree? Well, it is true that women are naturally caring and tend to follow their mothers in the kitchen when they are younger. The instinct of feeding someone is naturally instilled in most women. As mothers feed their babies when they are born, and I feel this carries on as an automatic reaction to feed the family. From a religious perspective, Islam teaches that in a household, man is the primary breadwinner and a woman is the guardian of the home, the primary caregiver who nurtures children. This nurturing is physical as well as emotional and instinctively cook to feed the family. I believe that these roles have been given to the genders as by nature. More often than not, women are more caring and give more emotional support and men tend to be inclined to give more physical, instrumental support. I have to say being natural cooks does not mean we are necessarily better cooks. I mean, if we see the international top chefs, most of them are men. But then again, they pursue a career path, but one cannot deny their love and passion for cooking. Another example of men being good or efficient cooks can be seen in our Ahmadiyya Muslim community, where we see each year at the community's annual convention called Jalsa Salana, which is attended by tens of thousands of people from all over the world. All the catering cooking is done by men of our community. They cook delicious fresh meals three times a day during the convention. Oh, yes, and the meals at the annual convention are quite delicious. Um, the dal in particular is my personal favourite. Um, thank you so much both for your answers. Um, and so in today's episode, we will be exploring the topic of food through the lens of the Islamic teaching of halal, which is a concept derived from the Arabic word meaning permissible or lawful. And so we will be going into the nature of the dietary practices of Muslims, as well as the broader impact it has on their daily lives. Halal, as some listeners may be aware, is a multifaceted teaching encompassing all aspects of life for Muslims and is not just confined to the realm of food alone. Halal signifies or means what is permissible in Islamic law. It serves as a guiding principle that influences the decisions of Muslims, encouraging them to lead lives that are in harmony with their faith and values. Sana, could you explain a bit more about the teachings of halal in Islam and its history and origins? So halal is an Arabic term and as you said, halud, in general it means what is permissible. The term is mostly associated with food, in particular with meat, although its scope is much wider. Again, as you said, halal food is a type of food that is permissible for Muslims to eat according to Islamic dietary law. Halal meat is that which has been slaughtered in the name of Allah. In Islamic teaching, the opposite of the term halal is is the term haram, which means what is forbidden. Islam provides guidance for a pure and healthy life. 
Halal is a term used in the Holy Quran to guide Muslims in all aspects of life, from marriage to trade and even to the extreme situation of war. There are rules about what is halal or permissible in Islam. Allah states in the Holy Quran in more than one place, and I quote, All good things have been made lawful for you. Again, in another place, the Holy Quran explains what is permissible and what is not, and then beautifully concludes the verse with the words, and I quote, These are the limits fixed by Allah, so approach them not. Thus, though Allah makes his commandments clear to man, that they may become secure against evil. So we see here the concept of halal explained as limits fixed by Allah. So the concept of halal, or permissible, extends to almost everything a Muslim follows or acts on. It is a way of life, a code of conduct, and most of the time we follow these rules without laid out in the Holy Quran. As I said earlier, it encompasses everything in life and even death, for example the act of suicide is forbidden in Islam, so it is the opposite of halal. As this show is about food, I would like to go back to the concept of halal in food and that Islam is not the first or only religion which has dietary guidance in the holy scriptures as to what is permissible and what is not. In Judaism, Jewish dietary laws known as kashrut are outlined in Torah, the Jewish holy scripture which includes the prohibition of eating pork and shellfish, the separation of dietary and meat products, and the requirement for proper slaughtering of animals, known as sheshita. Further, in Hinduism, we can see that the dietary practices vary among individuals and communities, but the majority of Hindus follow vegetarian or lacto-vegetarian diet. I think with this, we can get the picture that the origin of having dietary practices and guidance which food is healthy for the body is in the Holy Scriptures has not started in Islam, but goes far beyond. Mm -hmm. That is very true. And it is interesting to think why this guidance exists. Um, Sana, could you delve into the impact of these teachings on the lives of Muslims and sort of like the benefits for those who adhere to them? Islam is a comprehensive way of life that governs various aspects of a Muslim's life, including their diet. Muslims believe following the commandments of Allah is a fundamental aspect of their faith, and adhering to halal food regulations is one, one of these commandments. It is obedience to Allah's will. It is believed to be spiritually pure and free from anything that is considered forbidden or haram. Consuming halal food is seen as a way to maintain spiritual purity and integrity. Looking at this aspect of draining the blood properly during the halal slaughter is seen as a way to reduce the risk of contamination and the spread of diseases. Halal meat have higher food safety and hygiene, leading to healthier and safer food. Certainly I can try and delve into the impact of Islamic teachings on the lives of Muslims and the benefits of those who adhere to them. Islamic teachings have a profound influence on the lives of Muslims encompassing various aspects of life, including spirituality, ethics, mor morality, social conduct and more. So when preparing for the show, I'll look into this and noted down some key areas where Islamic teachings have a significant impact and benefit for those who follow it. Staying within the topic of halal, all these key areas stem from what is halal or permissible in Islam. There is sp spiritual fulfillment. Islamic teachings emphasize the worship of one God, Allah, and provide us 
a structured framework for connecting with the divine, regular prayer, fasting during Ramadan, and pilgrimage to Mecca are among the practices that help Muslims cultivate a deep sense of spirituality and closeness to God. Then there is morality and ethics. Islam, Islam's ethics are built in principles such as honesty, compassion, justice, and generosity. Adhering to these values helps Muslims lead a life characterized by moral integrity and ethic conduct, both in personal and business matters. Personal development, the pursuit of knowledge and self-improvement is encouraged in Islam. Education is highly regarded and Muslims are encouraged to seek knowledge throughout their lives. This commitment to learning can lead to personal growth and advancement. Then we have health and well-being. Islamic teachings include guidelines on diet, hygiene and health. For example, again, what is permissible and what is forbidden. Muslims are prohibited from consuming alcohol and pork, and regular cleansing practices are part of daily life. These guidelines can contribute to overall health and well-being. Last but not least, there is belief in the hereafter. Islamic teachings offer a clear concept of the afterlife, which provides comfort and motivation for its followers. Belief in the Day of Judgment encourages Muslims to lead a righteous life, as they believe they will be held accountable for their deeds in the hereafter. It's important to note that the impact and benefits of Islamic teachings can vary among individuals, depending on their level of devotion, interpretation of the teachings and cultural context. For many Muslims, adhering to these teachings provides a framework for living a meaningful and purposeful life in accordance with their faith. Sana, thank you so much. Your insights into the impact of Islamic teachings on the lives of Muslims and sort of the associated benefits, that was really profound and enlightening. Um, it's really evident that Islam provides a comprehensive framework that guides various aspects of a Muslim's life, um, including dietary practices. And this is all in obedience to Allah's commandments. Thank you for your answer. So we've established that Muslims strive to follow a halal lifestyle and learnt about the many benefits of it for them. We've also learnt the importance and significance of it for them, which is also one of the reasons why halal food is certified, so that Muslim consumers can seek reassurance that the food they consume is permissible and meets their religious requirements. Um, Sibiha, could you delve into the process of certification and the method of halal slaughtering? Halal certification is essentially the obtainment of documentation which proves certain food products to be fit for consumption by the Muslim population according to their religious beliefs. So during this process, the products and features are tested for quality and also for compliance with Islamic dietary law. The halal or Islamic way is that animals must be slaughtered with a single cut and with the blood allowed to drain from the body of the animal. This religious dietary law states that the animal should be killed through a cut to the jugular vein. And with this technique, the connection with the central nervous system is severed in one single sharp cut to the neck, blocking all pain sensations instantaneously. The certification process also ensures that the halal slaughtered meat 
hasn't been in contact with other meat or pork products and hasn't been slaughtered in any other manner. Packaged halal products are always marked with a symbol to represent this process. Mm, Thank you. And so what is the science behind this method? Well, for decades, scientific studies have been done into the halal method of slaughter. Reading up for this show, it was found that a research article on Islam and veterinary science published published last year in 2022 by National Sun Yat-sen University in Taiwan makes some very interesting observations. It says that results have shown that the stress of animals slaughtered with mechanical stunning was higher than the group slaughtered with the modified halal procedure. And that in short, based on the indexes of hormones and of hyperglycemia, or high blood sugar levels, gas stunning can be more stressful than halal slaughter without stunning according to this experiment. The paper concluded that the no-harm principle that Islamic animal ethics cherishes is in principle compatible with contemporary animal welfare concerns despite contrary stereotypes. There was another study carried out in the Spanish University of Extremadura, again from last year, which provided evidence that overall the production of halal meat was expected to hold higher nutritional quality than conventional meat and consequently provide significant health benefits. Hmm. And what are the benefits it brings for animal welfare and food quality and safety? So Islam encourages that people show love and kindness to animals and this compassion extends to even the act of animal slaughter or sacrifice. So Muslims have been instructed to eat meat from animals that have been slaughtered in a humane way and one which inflicts minimal pain. When animals are slaughtered, as I just said, it is done by a single sharp cut across the neck, which would sever the jugular vein. And as this has a close link to the animal's nervous system, its pain signals are blocked in an instant. There are also guidelines in place that prevent animals from being harmed where multiple animals are to be slaughtered. And these include not allowing the animal to see other animals being slaughtered and ensuring that the animal isn't in any way distressed prior to the slaughter. So making sure it is well fed and rested and that it is kept in good conditions. Islam also prohibits eating meat from animals which have died of natural causes or have died from being attacked or beaten to death. The Holy Qur'an lays down very clear guidelines for this. We read in chapter 5, verse 4, and I quote, Forbidden to you is the flesh of an animal which dies of itself, and blood and the flesh of swine, and that on which is invoked the name of one other than Allah, and that which has been strangled, and that beaten to death and that killed by a fall, and that which has been gored to death, and that of which a wild animal has eaten, except that which you have properly slaughtered, and that which has been slaughtered at an altar. End quote. This ensures that we do not eat meat where there is a risk of contamination, 
but also ensures that we are being mindful of the welfare of animals also. Thank you for delving into that. Um, so in Islam, Muslims are encouraged to eat food that is tayyib, which also means wholesome or pure. Could you explain this to us in a bit more detail? Um, why should our food be tayyib? And can you share some examples? Yes, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Exalted says, O ye messengers, eat of the things that are pure and do good works. Chapter 23, verse 52. For Muslims, permissible food doesn't just have to be halal, but also has to be tayyib, which means pure or wholesome. There is a deep and profound connection between pure and wholesome food and a moral standing of a person. And the belief is that food exerts a powerful influence on man's morals and hence food should be sourced from permissible sources and should be wholesome in not just its origin, but in its preparation and consumption as well. So for example, some foods can be halal, but we may not be able to eat them because they are not tayyab. In a Review of Religions article, I read further about the concept of tayyab food and it was very pleasantly explained, as it's not just one reason that can make a food pure or wholesome. There are actually many different facets to this point, but all with the overall principle, and I quote, is that the greater good of the community takes precedence over individual privileges. So just a couple of examples would include ensuring that the meat we eat is reared in an environmentally friendly way, and eating meat that will not lead to social unrest or controversy. So, for example, eating beef in India, where cows are considered sacred. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, gave guidance related to horses and donkeys that whilst they are halal forms of meat, he forbade eating them because they served as important modes of transport and welfare, so therefore consuming these animals would have caused a national shortage of an important resource. So these are just a few very brief examples, but like I mentioned before, there's a lot of interesting detail that Islam has paid towards ensuring that we're not just responsible for our food intake, but to stop, think and consider about the wider implications of our actions as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing this enlightening perspective on Dayyub food and its underlying principles. It's fascinating to see how Islam encourages us to think beyond the mere permissibility of food, um, which is the halal aspect of it, but also to consider the broader ethical and communal aspects too, which is the Dayyub bit. So your examples and especially about the environmental impact of our food choices and the social sensitivities related to meat consumption, those were really, really quite thought provoking. I know you both spoke earlier about the role and significance of food in your personal lives. And it was interesting to hear about how religion and culture play a role. The significance of food as a unifying force is not only a historical phenomenon, but also finds its roots in Islamic teachings. It is now time for a short break. Join us after the break, where we will delve into this further. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said, Whoever relieves a believer of his worries in this world 
will have his afflictions removed by Allah on the Day of Judgment. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Sisters on Air on The Voice of Islam Radio. Before the break, we were discussing the historical significance of food in uniting people and how, in fact, this is not only a historical phenomenon, but also finds its roots in Islamic teachings. Let's take a closer look at how this age-old tradition is rooted in the teachings of Islam. Food has always had a profound place within Islam, reflecting the values and principles that guide the lives of Muslims. In Islam, sharing meals holds great importance and is encouraged as a means to foster unity and strengthen social ties. Islam encourages Muslims to reach out to those in need and share their blessings with others. This is exemplified through the concept of sadqa, which means the voluntary acts of charity, and includes providing food to the less fortunate. The act of feeding others is considered as a noble deed, promoting empathy and strengthening the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood within the community. The Islamic calendar is marked by special occasions where food plays a central role in community gatherings. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, during the holy month of Ramadan, Muslims fast from dawn till sunset and then come together for iftar, the meal that breaks the fast. These communal meals create an atmosphere of unity as individuals from all walks of life join together to share in the blessings of sustenance and gratitude. Similarly, the festive occasion of Eid al-Fitr celebrates the culmination of Ramzan and is characterised by sharing feasts and the exchange of food among family, friends and neighbours. In keeping with the teachings of Islam about communal meals, we see that within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Jalsa Salana, which is the annual convention for Ahmadi Muslims, reinforces the values of hospitality and generosity. Sabiha, could you delve into this further? How does sharing meals and communal dining strengthen bonds within the Muslim community and promote unity? And what are the sort of Islamic teachings regarding this? Islam teaches us to be hospitable towards guests. We see that hospitality has been mentioned in the Holy Quran, which highlights its significance in the faith. The Quran states that when Prophet Abraham, peace be on him, had some visitors, prompt arrangements were made to serve the guests, and it was not long before a roasted calf was served to them. Chapter 11, verse 70. We have many examples from the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, called Hadith, and we also read in the books of the Promised Messiah, on whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, of how they undertook the task of looking after guests or neighbours with such reverence and importance. So these blessed role models are guiding lights for us all. 
from a young age as well, we're taught to share and always give to those who are sat near us, those who are younger and those who are less fortunate. So when people do sit together to eat, it unifies them. They automatically become involved with sharing food and the food itself becomes the very thing that connects them. From there, we then start to communicate with one another and connections and bonds are made. And we can see this at home as well, where a family who eats together gets to share their stories and experiences of the day and by doing so are able to promote togetherness between them. So on a wider level, eating with friends or people you may not know can initiate friendship, promote tolerance and provide an insight or understanding of the other person. Thank you so much. Um, your explanation of the significance of hospitality in Islam, it's very inspiring, especially to think of how the practice extends to a broader context as well, where sharing a meal with friends or even strangers can initiate friendship and it can promote tolerance and it can enhance our understanding of others. It's a reminder of the profound ability of something as simple as sharing a meal to transcend barriers and bring people closer, regardless of background. Um, earlier I mentioned the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention for Ahmadi Muslims. Could you tell us a bit more about this convention and what has been your experience of you know, sharing food um, and how does this all align with Islamic teachings of hospitality and generosity? What was the promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community on whom be peace? Um, what was his vision for this? Yes, so Jalsa Salana is of course the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Here in the UK, it brings together tens of thousands of people from dozens of different countries all over the world for the purpose of increasing religious knowledge and promoting societal peace. There are speeches on various religious topics and a number of parliamentarians, civic leaders and diplomats also attend. Aside from the spiritual nourishment of these three days, physical nourishment is also well taken care of, all in light of the Islamic teachings of hospitality. So during these three days, freshly prepared meals are catered for and provided for all attendees. The background to this concept has been highlighted to us by His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya community, in one of his Friday sermon speeches on the 18th of July 2008, where he explained how the concept of providing food and ensuring that the comfort and needs of the guests of the convention were attended to. He mentioned in this sermon that the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, was told by Allah that people would come to him in their droves and when people come to a strange place, they are guests. He received a revelation from Allah informing him that people would come to him in their multitudes and that he should not be annoyed nor get tired of meeting them. This revelation also alluded to not only provision for the visits made by the Khalifa of the time, but also to the fact that his community will grow in numbers, as will the development and devotion of the people of this community. And it was out of this that he initiated the langar, or in English, kitchen, for this purpose. 
So now today, if anyone is lucky enough to attend the convention, the atmosphere and sheer scale of operations is quite immense and, and extraordinary. Just with regards to hospitality and the provision of meals alone, the hospitality period extends for a long time prior to the convention for the volunteers who help to set up the site and also for any guests who arrive earlier for the convention. So as I said, hot meals are prepared fresh on the day on site. The food is simple yet wholesome and everyone is catered for. The young and the elderly are served in their own marquees separately to ensure that they are served without delay. We all eat at the same table. There are volunteers who help serve the food as quickly as possible and all whilst ensuring that people don't rush in or likewise aren't left queuing for too long either. No one is left hungry. There is a European food marquee for those who may not eat the South Asian traditional spicy food. There's even warm milk available for young children and babies. And even the workers and volunteers are looked after by provision of a 24-hour dining marquee so that they can eat whenever they get the chance to around their volunteering schedules. So you can see that there is a huge operation just in serving food alone, all with the backdrop of Islamic teachings. And because we are all eating the same food in the same space, we promote equality and unity and caring for the less fortunate. And these few examples illustrate the hospitality and generosity that Islam teaches from a very young age. Thank you for delving into that. The fact that tens of thousands of people from various countries come together for this purpose, it's truly a testament to the unity and global reach of this convention. Thank you so much. Now, what is really interesting to me is that there is so much guidance in Islam surrounding food. And as a medical student, it is so fascinating to me to see how intricately faith, nutrition and health are interconnected. For example, the Holy Quran, the holy book for Muslims, promotes the consumption of specific food items such as olives, bananas, grapes, pomegranates, figs and dates, and this was done at a time where there was no scientific understanding of the nutritional benefits of them. And something else that is really intriguing to me is that um, in Islam, the abstinence of food and drink altogether is also promoted as a means of protection against sin. A tradition of the Holy Prophet, uh, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, states that he said, Whoever fasts in the month of Ramadan out of sincere faith and hoping for a reward from Allah, then all his previous sins will be forgiven. End quote. And this is explained further by the promised Messiah on whom be peace, that sin is born from one distancing themselves from Allah. A lack of recognition and cognizance of God Almighty leads to one's increased inclination towards sin and material indulgences. In his writings, the promised Messiah on whom be peace states, and I quote, The wicked spirit of sin seeks to destroy a man and a person cannot escape the fatal poison of sin till he believes with full certainty in the perfect and living God until he knows for certain that God exists, who punishes the offender and bestows upon the righteous everlasting joy. 
It is a common experience that when one believes in the fatal effects of anything, one does not have resource to it. End quote. Material indulgences are often the cause of one's attention being diverted from Allah, and therefore they open the doors to sin. In light of this, His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, the second successor of the promised Messiah on whom be peace, writes in his book Ahmadiyyat or the True Islam that, and I quote, Fasting secures one against sin, for sin is born of inclination towards material indulgence. When a man becomes accustomed to a course of conduct, it is difficult for him to renounce it. But a man who is still able to give up a habit or course of conduct at will never becomes its slave. A man who, in order to seek the pleasure of God, gives up for a whole month all material pleasures and learns to exercise control and restraint can easily overcome temptations that lead to sin. End quote. Um, Sana, earlier I mentioned the concept of sadqa, the voluntary acts of charity that include providing food to the less fortunate. There is also an underlying theme of sacrifice in Eid al-Adha in the context. So could you explain these teachings to us in a bit more detail? Uh, yes, um, Eid al-Adha marks the completion of the pilgrimage to Mecca by Muslims on the 10th day of the Islamic month of Zul-Hajj. It is obligatory to bring the pilgrimage to a successful end with the sacrifice of an animal. This is done in remembrance of Prophet Abraham's readiness to sacrifice his son Ismail. This is accordance to the teachings of Islam and varies from what is recorded in the Bible of it being Isaac. Ismail, in turn, resigned to being sacrificed under the belief that it was the will of God. The act of sacrifice is a symbolic reminding the person who offers it that the animal is inferior to him, so he also is inferior to God and should therefore be ready to sacrifice himself and all his personal interests and inclinations for the, for the sake of God and when he is required to do so. Eid al-Adha is known as the Eid or festival of sacrifice for more than the sacrifice of an animal, as I just mentioned. This was explained by His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmed in one of his Eid al-Adha sermons where he said, and I quote, Today, by the grace of Allah, we are celebrating Eid al-Adha, which is the Eid of sacrifice. It is celebrated in memory of the sacrifice made by a father, mother and son thousands of years ago. It was not a momentary sacrifice, rather it spanned several years. Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, left his beloved wife and son in a barren land. He did so only because this was a commandment of Allah the Almighty given to him. When his wife found out that she and her son were being left there for the sake of Allah Almighty, she showed a tremendous spirit of sacrifice. She said to the Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, with great resolve and firmness that, then you must leave us. If this is being done as a result of the commandment of Allah the Almighty, then Allah will never forsake us. So as a result of their sacrifice, Allah the Almighty arranged for a constant stream of water in that very place where they were left behind, and the stream continues to give water today. Allah the Almighty also arranged for food. In fact, 
He established a town in the desert, and according to his promise, Allah the Almighty provided for all necessities, and all the fruits and blessings are available in it. There was a time when it was a barren desert, and now that place has become the source of income for hundreds of thousands of people, and millions of people eat from there. So, this is how Allah the Almighty fulfills his promise and shows his shining signs. End quote. So we see that the commemoration of sacrifice at Eid al-Adha includes a supreme sacrifice of an exceptional woman. Thank you for sharing that. That's very, very interesting and enlightening. Now, as we near the end of our episode today, I wanted to ask, on a personal and local level, Sana, in what other ways can we use food as a means of social activism or community engagement? Um, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, nourish means to provide people or living things with food that helps keep them healthy and promotes growth, while the Collins Dictionary indicates that nourish means providing people with food that is essential for life, growth and good health. Now, this nourishment can uh, and must be extended to where needed, of course, beyond our person and our family. The cost of living crisis adds a very poignant aspect to this. There are many ways we can extend this help, donating to food banks, participating in projects that feed the homeless and also get educated about food waste and sustainability. Most religions lay emphasis on community engagement and looking after the vulnerable. In Islam, it is considered highly commendable to care for those in need and is deemed akin to worship of God. There is so much we can do in our local communities to build a better bond and do serve God's creation, help the wider community. I think when we do act like donate to food banks or feed the homeless, it has to be constant, not just occasionally. As the community suffers on an ongoing basis, it is necessary to help the local community. It is also necessary to be aware if our neighbours or relatives around us need any help. We can see that sometimes calling someone over for a cup of tea or cake can build so many bridges and help the person's mental health. There are many people out there who are not just uh, deprived of food, but also socializing and interacting. Whilst help to feed them or giving them a small gift of food, it is also necessary to communicate and look after their well-being. Thank you for shedding light on how food can be a powerful vehicle for positive change in our local communities. Um, are there any notable examples of projects by Lejna Imaila, the Women's Auxiliary Organization of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, um, that are sort of applying these teachings and carrying out these initiatives? Um, yeah, we have a great department within our Lejna Auxiliary called Khidmat Khalq which means service of all humanity. It is a department that endeavours to actively help those who need it in our society. As per the beautiful teachings of Islam, our members here in UK, as they do all over the world wherever Lajna is established, strive to relieve pain and suffering of mankind and to create bond of love and harmony amongst one another, regardless of race, culture and creed. During COVID, women from our auxiliary cooked food and distributed it to the NHS frontline workers. Not just food was made, they came together and stitched PPE. Besides, on a regular basis across the UK, women helped with the homeless by cooking, 
there's collection of donations for various charities and internal charities and fundraising throughout the year, year in, year out. There are monthly targets given to members up and down the country to do a variety of humanitarian activities which serve mankind within their geographical area. It is Islam which teaches us to take care of humankind, starting with your own neighbour, and we try to put this in practice as members of Lajna. It's truly heartening to learn about the wonderful work which has been carried out by the members of Lajna Imaila. Thank you so much for sharing. So we started off today's episode debunking some myths regarding the role of women and food. And as we approach the end of today's episode, it only makes sense to circle back to the topic. In Islam, the role of women in the kitchen has often been misinterpreted and misunderstood. While it is true that women have historically taken on the responsibility of food preparation and nurturing their families, it is essential to recognise that this does not limit their worth or capabilities solely to the kitchen. Islam encourages gender equity and equality and emphasizes the importance of shared responsibilities within the household. Both men and women are encouraged to contribute to the well-being of their families, including cooking, cleaning, childcare and other domestic tasks. And the division of labor is based on mutual agreement and individual capabilities. Moreover, it is crucial to remember that Islam does not restrict women to the private sphere of their homes. Islamic teachings recognize the unique strengths and talents of women and encourage their active participation in all areas of life, including education, medicine, community service and leadership roles and everything. Many members of Lajna Imaila, the Women's Auxiliary Organization of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, have made significant contributions to various fields, showcasing their intellectual, artistic, entrepreneurial and social excellence. Therefore, it is important to note that women have the freedom to pursue their interests, talents and aspirations in all spheres of life. Islam encourages women to seek knowledge, excel in their chosen endeavours and actively participate in shaping society while upholding their values and principles. As we've learnt today in our episode that the teachings of Islam regarding food are multifaceted and extremely comprehensive and applicable to everyday life. And to this day, scientific research is unravelling the incredible wisdom behind the teachings that were prescribed more than 1,400 years ago. We've had a really interesting conversation today. Um, I'd just like to finish off by asking our guests a really, really important final question. So, Sabiha, I want to know, what are your favourite foods? Can you give us recommendations, um, any favourite recipes? Please tell us. Oh, I really enjoy making meals at home for my family and friends. Um, I have a few recipes I always enjoy making, but I think one I've been told that is really good is my veggie stir-fried rice. So I make it with a variety of different vegetables. So it looks as 
looks really colourful. It looks as colourful as it tastes. I also enjoy trying out different salad recipes too for that reason, I think. Um, I really like mixing different flavours and textures and trying foods and recipes from different continents. Wow, that sounds really, really nice. Um, Sana, what about you? What are your favourite um, family foods and traditional dishes? Um, that is a very difficult question. <laughs> we all have different favourites at different occasions. Uh, the traditional South Asian favourite is aloo gosh, which is a lamb curry with potatoes or basically any meat curries we love or rice. The children like any traditional curry with some sauce and potato in it. So I'm very lucky that my children eat traditional South Asian food and I like most of the dishes. The all-time favourite is the kebab curry. We make traditional mincemeat kebabs with all the ingredients in it but stay a bit lighter on the spice side than usual kebabs. Fry onions in a separate pan, wait until golden brown. Put some ginger, garlic, tomatoes in it and then uh, spice a bit, but um, keeping it milder than usual as the kebabs also have spice in it. Then we mash it into a puree and fry the kebab separately. And once the kebabs are done, we put it in a puree and carefully let it soak in the flavours. So after 5-10 minutes, the kebab curry is ready. Wow, that sounds so tasty. I think I need to go try that immediately. <laughs> so I have really, really thoroughly enjoyed our enlightening discussion today. We've delved into the Islamic teachings surrounding food and their impact on the lives of Muslim women. Um, to end today's episode, let's highlight some key values and teachings of Islam in relation to this topic that we've learned today. So firstly, nourishment and gratitude. Islamic teachings emphasize the importance of consuming wholesome and lawful food as a means of nourishing the body and maintaining good health. Muslims are encouraged to approach food with gratitude and mindfulness, recognizing it as a blessing from Allah and being conscious of the impact it has on their overall well-being. Secondly, we've learnt about balance and moderation. Islam promotes moderation in all aspects of life, including food consumption. Muslim women are encouraged to maintain a balanced diet, incorporating a variety of nutritious foods whilst avoiding excessive indulgence or extravagance. And moderation also helps in maintaining good health and preventing negative consequences of overeating or unhealthy dietary habits. We've learnt about um, the concept of halal and the concept of tayyib um, and Islamic teachings emphasise these concepts um, which adheres to specific guidelines outlined in the Quran and the Sunnah which means the practices of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Additionally, the concept of tayyib um, food is encouraged, encompassing not only the legality of food, but also its quality, source and the way it is prepared. Muslims are encouraged to seek out halal and tayyib options, considering ethical sourcing, sustainable practices and the overall impact on their health and the environment. Another thing that is important that we've learnt today is community and hospitality. In Islam, food plays a significant role in fostering community bonds and practicing hospitality. Muslims often take the lead in welcoming guests and preparing meals and hosting gatherings, reflecting the teachings of generosity, compassion and inclusivity.
And finally, we've learnt about empowerment and education. Islamic teachings encourage both men and women to seek knowledge and educate themselves about matters of faith, including the principles of halal food, dietary guidelines and the benefits of a balanced lifestyle. Muslims are encouraged to actively engage in learning and empowering themselves with the necessary skills and knowledge to make informed decisions regarding food choices, nutrition and overall well-being. And on that note, we end today's episode. I've been your host, Khulud Tahir. Thank you once again to our guests, Sabiha Kuyum and Sana Hanif and our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Sisters on Air on the Voice of Islam Radio. This program was produced by Mrs. Shirmeen Bhatt. Please join us again next time for more discussion on matters relating to women in religion and society. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.